Hello everyone and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. Today my guest is Derek Kirkup, and we spend most of the time talking about his score for the brand new film Sorority, which released on February 10th, and his score comes out tomorrow, February 14th. And it's a really tight, emotional film about two sisters and their mother and their interpersonal drama. Derek's score works its way in between these moments in bittersweet, minimalist, ambient sense. It's a really enjoyable score, and one that you can easily put on repeat, so I highly recommend checking it out. He was kind enough to actually let me put in a couple clips throughout this interview, so you'll hear some snippets and hopefully those pique your interest even more. But in addition to talking about the film and his score, we, as any good conversation should, take some detours into talking about Nick Cage and the parallels, if there are any, between his acting style and film music, and maybe the potential futures of film music, and he manages to sell me on the future of cinematic VR and what music might be in that context. Now you can find more about Derek on social media or on his website, and, like I said, check out the score on your streaming platform of choice, or buy it. And of course, you can always read more about me on social media at the Film Score, visiting the website as well for the constant array of interviews, reviews, and the occasional score single premiere. I actually have one coming out tomorrow as well. Now, in the meantime, sit back, and I hope you enjoy. Derek, thank you so much for joining me. How have you been? Very well, thank you, Nick. Yeah, doing well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course, of course. Great to hear you're doing well. So we're jumping on this to talk about your new film that's coming out, or depending on the release date, may have already come out, called Sorority. It's very much an intimate familial drama about two sisters and their mother and kind of their relationship. So how did you get involved in working on that film? Well, so... It's kind of the short history of how me and James uh, Weber started working together. We we met when I actually said to one of my other close collaborators, Carl McKenzie, I said to him, who do you think I should be working with? And uh, I think his number one name that he mentioned was was James. So I sent James a message and said, you know, do you fancy going for coffee? And we met up and we just sort of stayed in touch for a while. I'm not sure how long after it was we made that initial contact, but we we decided to work on a short horror film together that he was doing, which was this three-minute supernatural horror called Hushy Buy, which is available to to watch for free online. And yeah, we did this like really creepy sort of three-minute short, and the score was kind of all this from my perspective. And actually, the references that we discussed, it was very much like The Conjuring and mm. um, some of those scores by Joseph Bashara. We were doing that kind of cacophonic orchestral stuff. So that was the first thing that we did together. And um, it was a really good experience working together. It went really, really smoothly. In fact, one of my favorite parts of it was that James sent me really tight storyboards with actual timings on it. So I was able to write the score to the storyboards and he played it on set to get the actors mm. in like a you know freak them out and get them in get them <laughs> in the mood. So yeah, anyway, so we did we we had this great experience working together on that score. And then I, I think James was already at the stage by the time he made Hushy by that that there were features in the works, you know, there was a, there was stuff that 
was in development and we discussed at least two other feature projects I think and we got quite far in in the sort of the discussions and it there were times when it felt like one or one of the or the other one was going to happen and then from my memory sorority actually kind of came out of nowhere and <laughs> and we had we hadn't discussed it at all and then suddenly that was the film that was going to get made and quite quickly after it was discussed I think things were, were rolling. Um, Sophie Kennedy Clark was involved very early on to play Harriet, but also producing as well. And I think as a result of that, we were getting lots of doors opened quite quickly. So yeah, that's that's the the short the short history of how I got involved. And was there anything in particular that drew you to that project, or was it really just the culmination, as you mentioned, of you and James, the director, talking through different potential features, and that one sort of popping up? Well, well. So when I when I got in touch with James uh, initially, he sent me all of his films to watch, um, or or cer- certain films to watch. You know, so I watched I watched Driftwood, which also which stars Sam Gittins, which is also in who is also in Sorority. I watched Driftwood. I watched Soror, which is the short that inspired Sorority. It's actually a very similar, essentially the same story, but in a short short form with some fundamental elements different. Um, also with Kate Dickey. You know, it was obvious that James is a very sensitive filmmaker and that's really what I'm interested in is is stories with very nuanced character development. From my perspective, that creates the most interesting opportunities for my work. So although what we first went to work on was this was this three minute horror, which was, you know, I, I, it wasn't it wasn't obviously tongue in cheek, but I suppose you know, we were having fun with it. It was it wasn't as deep and serious a project as as sorority is. So although that's that was our testing ground, my eye was always on what are these dramas that that James is going to make. Well, I think that's it's so funny mentioning making a, a score that's the reference point being Joseph Bashara because yeah, that style of just like dissonance and cacophony, it's grating and, and burrows into you is probably the maybe literally the exact opposite of the style on Sorority, which is a much more airy, gentle, not quite ambient, but like an atmospheric style of music. Those two couldn't be further apart. And obviously it's it's fitting really well, but it is always just funny seeing that sort of disparity or range between projects. It's funny you say that because I've never, I've never thought to compare them. But there are similarities in the way that I put the palettes together and the way that I build atmosphere in the sorority score and the, the layering of different textures and timbres is methodically, it's not actually a million miles off from how I created Hushibai. It's just that the end effect on the, on the viewer, on the audience is very different. <laughs> yeah. And there's, there's much more melody and harmony in sorority, whereas Hushibai, there was none of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, on Sorority, there's the, the main kind of sister's theme or motif is very melodic and often comes through in this gentle, slow piano melody that obviously wouldn't work in that type of piercing horror film and horror score. No, no, no. <laughs> the score is really interesting because of how it works in the film. It seems like Throughout the film, every 10 or 15 minutes, there are these, be like a slow motion sequence or a montage or something that's almost dreamlike that exists in between scenes. That's almost as if it's not real. And that's where the score comes in almost entirely. There are a few moments where it enters 
what I feel like is the real world of the film, especially at the end. But for the most part, it kind of exists in those in-between moments. So what was the process of determining what was actually going to be scored? We had a spotting session, myself and uh, James and Michael Bates, the sound mixer, um, over at Michael's studio. And we just spent the whole day, ate a lot of croissants and and pastries (laughs) and um, coffee. And we just watched the film and, and we paused and we took notes and... I can't remember if at that stage James had already sent us, you know, some notes on where he expected the cues to be. And we were working from that to sort of go in more detail. I can't quite remember that, although we did have a working document with both the sound design and the music notes Mm. side by side. And and so I worked quite closely with Michael in, in order to ensure that we weren't stepping on each other's toes, basically. And we were we were making sure that we step out of each other's way at the right times. It was always clear that the slow motion sequences that had no dialogue would be full score. So the, the scene with the trolley was an obvious choice yeah. for score. A lot of the stuff shot at Hengistbury Head on the beach was was quite obviously going to be thickly scored. You know, I imagine if James hadn't explicitly said that, I would have got the gist that those were going to be full score moments. Some of the more interesting choices, I suppose, is like the argument between Andrew and Harriet towards the beginning, and the score steps in at the end of the argument. We have that one long take of them arguing, and, you know, I'm not doing anything there. I'm just letting them do do that amazing sequence between the two of them. So we had this spotting session and what I would do is we'd get to a certain section, I'd be watching something and I would get a sense of a movement or a tone that I was going to bring and then I would think of a reference that would that would make that clear. For example, some some of Johansson's work on the theory of everything came up as as references mm. and it wasn't like temping. We weren't going to use it as a as a temp track to sort of roughly emulate, right. but it was kind of like look this is the kind of movement and rhythm that I'm thinking of here. Here's this track that demonstrates that. That worked really, really well. And and um, I and, and just I think that whole spotting session, we, we all feel it was one of the best experiences in terms of doing that process on a, on a film. It just went so smoothly and we had such a blast with it. Interesting. And I do think that that's probably how temper reference music is the most useful when you're boiling it down to the abstractions of all right, what about this music? What aspect of it is useful? What do we want to pull out of it? Rather than just saying, let's do something that sounds like this. But in terms of the, the spotting session, the process of scoring, it does sound like it was really collaborative, went really smoothly. But were there any roadblocks or challenges that came up during it? Um, I mean, it sounds so idealistic. No, <laughs> <laughs> there weren't. <laughs> You know, it was all such a dream to work on. The first time I got a sense of that, other than, you know, when we worked on Hushy by it was a smooth experience. It was it was a tight ship. I, I wasn't on set for that, but it's, it seemed like it, it all went pretty smoothly. And then, like I say, I had done the score in advance. And when I got the when I got the final locked edit back. Uh, it was just a case of moving a couple of things around and the draft was like 98% there. I you know, just got a couple of notes back. And um, so on Sorority, the first time I saw how tight a ship it was, was when I went along to the shoot for the uh, party scene as an extra. We needed lots of extras. So I went along 
and uh, was meant to be playing someone 10 years younger than my age. But um, and, and, you know, horrendously, I've made it into the film dancing at quite a specific scene. If you didn't spot it, that's great, because that means that perhaps no one else will. But um, I'm in there. So I was on set for, for that party scene. And God, it was just such a tight ship. And the, and the vibe in the set was so professional. Everyone was just running so smoothly calmly it wasn't like everyone was obviously having fun be, you know to the extent it's like oh you know is everyone taking the mick a little bit with this but it was almost a sense of everyone was so professional that there was an undercurrent of the joy that was being <laughs> had had there i remember saying to james at some point i think this is all going incredibly smoothly and he just didn't he didn't want to admit it he was so reluctant because <laughs> he didn't want to jinx it you know i could see how smoothly it was going there and then my next step was we got an initial edit in and I watched that and I wrote a suite basically with all of the key scenes in there and I didn't do it to picture but I did take sort of rough timings from from the edit and those scenes were the opening cue the scene where they play with the trolley the beach the scene where Sarah is journaling about her father and the final scene and I sent I sent that off to James and yeah pretty much got the nod Tears were shed, not by James, but by by other people, I'm told, and I won't embarrass them. So, you know, when you get a response like that, it's like, great, green green flag, and you just go. So so I so then I I think I had like before James heard anything else, there were like five or six cues pretty much substantially written or presented in such a way that it's like this could be finished, basically. And didn't have a lot of feedback. But, you know, that's not about me tooting my own horn. That's that's right. because as a filmmaker, James just his vision just speaks so clearly, you know. And he he wrote he wrote the script as well, and and he's seen that vision through from start to finish. And the performances, just the emotion that are, is in those scenes, it's just like I'd watch it, and the the music just came, you know. It was it was like I'm just empathising with what's there, and it, and it's all coming to me. And and I'm not key thing is that I wasn't second guessing myself. I wasn't right. sort of thinking maybe I should try a different direction or whatever I just I just went with my first impressions and it paid off so 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 yes it was it was a tight ship and the creative vision was just so clear from James as a writer and director down through all of the different departments and and all of the the cast it was it, yeah it was a dream it probably hopefully that sounds like it was a dream because that's exactly how it felt to me yeah it really it was, does and it's it is funny because in a lot of sense, the film is like that, too. There's obviously conflict throughout and, and tension and drama, but it's also a very dreamlike, uplifting film, too. And so it's it's funny that, and it's fitting, that everything else kind of worked in that same way. Well, there's clearly a lot of uplifting elements in, in the film, but where it really clicked for me was when James used the word bittersweet. Hmm. That's where the every everything started to make sense because you know through all of the turbulence that these sisters have have been through with their mother and and their father passing away they've been together for such a long time but they're going their separate ways now and they'll always be sisters but they'll never be children again and and all of those memories that they've shared, shared together as children that's it they're memories now they've grown up so that's the undercurrent that's going through all of this and that's why it's so heart-wrenching is is that sense of the passage of time and the sense of things that can't be undone and the healing that needs to be done so that that dreamlike quality in the film 
uh, the moments where that comes in. And it's, it's also reflected in the score and, and the harmony that I used is this sense of not quite being grounded, you know, and, and it's, it's because it is this great sense of like the really deep, mystical, eternal moving of time that you can't, that we can't stop. And, you know, we, we can't just stay with this moment as long as we would like to. It's, it's always moving and everything's changing, which is the title of the first cue. There's a lot of healing that goes on in that film between the characters, but there's also stuff that will be lost forever. But I think that's, because I was, I was listening to it again earlier today, and I think that balance of having that bittersweet aspect of, of the characters moving forward, hopefully, you know, moving to, to better things, bettering their lives, further growing up, but then the downsides that come with it and, and the drama that's inherent within their career relationship strikes the balance in the score as well, that it's, it also never gets to the point where it's just too twee or too saccharine, where, you know, you kind of just roll your eyes at it. I mean, candidly, I can't stand music like that. I'd say it doesn't even get near the border. So it's, it's a score that I would say focuses on the more positive aspects, but always has that undercurrent throughout. I mean, even in the sister's theme, it keeps that too, and it has that duality. Yeah, yeah. There were a couple of those cues where the feedback that I did get was that we had gone a bit too far into the mm. melodrama and we and we did have to rein it in a couple a couple of times. It wasn't far off, but it was they're such subtle performances that it, it didn't take much to over egg it. It's a very subtle world to write music for because these are sort of modest everyday everyday characters. We're in a suburbia of, of London. The events that happen are you know, so personal, but but they're you know we're we're not in some opera or or, or whatever. Right. So there was a lot in terms of the score that it's like yeah you can't we can't go too far with this. It defined the instrumentation. You know, it's like well this is this is why it's going to be a fundamentally an intimate score because a lot of the instrument choices were about reflecting the feminine qualities that were present in the film, but but also it's like. With the scenery, as beautifully as it's shot, the cinematography in it is, is fantastic, but we're always dealing with these small suburban kind of settings. So you, you, just, you just can't go too big with the score. There was always, it was always being reined in in some way, yeah. Well, interesting. And so then, going back in time a little bit, how did your decision-making process go of creating the, the palette? I mean, was there a time where you thought, oh, maybe I'll go more orchestral or more this way or that way or was the the broader style always in mind and then it was just figuring out the right pieces so there, there was a certain amount of james and i had had a back and forth of different tracks anyway he had a playlist that he'd been putting together for the film he also had playlists for each of the actors mm. so so they they had their own playlist that they would listen to so they could get into the you know understand more about who their character was so there were there were references that kind of and and i and i knew i knew anyway just james's general music tastes and and that you know in many ways align with my own there's sort of a synergy there that we we take for granted where where i didn't feel that i had to steer too much away from what i would like to do anyway there were budget considerations as well so it's like there was there was never going to be the budget to do something bold and orchestral but yeah. but you know that's not the, that's not the way around the decision process happened it was just like 
I couldn't imagine a full orchestral score sitting in that world, you know, where we're so close to the characters and some of the mundanities of their of their daily lives, you know, um, surrounding all of this this deep emotional stuff that's going on. And then, as I said, I, th- I think just understanding the feminine forces at play in this, not just three female leads, but the movement of emotional baggage and and that sort of thing like there there is the masculine in it like and andrew reflects that in his the hardness of his character and his, the way that he tries to control things initially anyway but but um otherwise it's this sense of time as a healer and which is a very you know feminine kind of energy so reflecting that in the score it was like I was always going to go with piano as something nice and intimate and a lot of the synth textures in there were also reflecting you know sort of softening out the score and and adding ambient ambience that way and so how do you how do you go about finding or creating those synth textures because obviously it's not as simple as going into your room and seeing what instruments are available right well, I, I really, I really enjoy sound design generally. So, so um, I tend to just imagine the sound that that I want, and and I go and make it. And um, I've, you know, I've got different. It was mostly software. In fact, it was all software synthesizers that I used. I didn't use any hardware for it. And I think they were all completely synthetic, as opposed to sort of being based on something sampled. No, there was some sampled stuff actually in there because there's there's some textures that I made that sort of sound a bit like breaking glass and that kind of thing and I and I think I had some kind of sample along those lines that that I used. But yeah, it was it was basically a case of imagining it and and then and then making it. Yeah, without without going into the de- the details of right. you know full sound design you know one oh one. I can't really <laughs> say more than that. Well, that's fine. I mean, if if you did that, I'd be I'd be totally lost anyways. So yeah. no worries. <laughs> yeah. Because I think you actually scored this, what, back in 2019, you'd mentioned. So I, I don't remember if this is your, your second or third feature amidst multiple shorts, and I think you actually have a TV pilot coming out, too. Was there a bit of a, I don't want to say learning curve necessarily, but a challenge going from doing a lot of shorts to something that's fuller length? Yeah, it's a really good question, actually. I think this was the this was the first sort of, I had done two other feature length projects, and but they weren't one was, you know, very indie in all ways, um, although I enjoyed working on it. And another was was a bit more, uh, you know, it, it wasn't typical. It was actually funded by a corporate and it was like an interactive film and it was it was released um, privately to their customers. So but it was feature length. So that, you know, that was a tight ship as well. But I think this was the first film where it was a typical feature film production in terms of the structure of the team who was ultimately answered to in terms of the creative vision and and also the just the love for the story and what we were trying to do you know the what there wasn't sort of obviously we were concerned we were interested in it being a financial success but we were first and foremost committed to making a, a really great piece of art so it was different in that respect to the previous features that I'd worked on um I'm just trying to remember what I did before that I think it might have been this this TV pilot that you mentioned because that's that's actually um, a few years old as well and um, both both these projects got held up because of COVID and right. and other factors yeah I can't I don't the learning curve I don't remember well uh, do you know what it was it, I think I'd learned some things on that pilot about my process that I'd managed to make much more efficient mm. I don't think I'd done a suite before I don't think I'd written a suite for a for a film before so I think the primary goal there was was about building confidence. So it was like, right, this is my emotional artistic impression of what's going on here and here here's the sort of 
you know, it, it was one piece of music, but but there were distinctly four or five sections that ultimately became different cues. What I was looking for was 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 just the green light. Basically, it was just it was just being like, yep, you've got it. You've got the vibe. You've got the the story in a nuanced, detailed right. way, like not an aesthetic way. It's like, yeah, you get it. Go. Yeah. Once once I had that, it was kind of it was kind of smooth going. But we, you know, I was lucky that we didn't have. I, I was doing some ideas at the end of 2019, but I think most of the scoring was 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 the beginning of 2020. Mm. And I think for the amount of music that I wrote, I had a generous deadline. So there was there was that going for me. Going back to it being a dream, there was a lot <laughs> <laughs> a lot working in my favor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was I was kind of surprised because you know sometimes when you when you watch a film, it feels like there isn't a lot of music, and then you realize there is, or you see the the score release and it's like, oh, there's actually 40 minutes of music for this 90-minute film. But when you watch the film, there there isn't a ton of music and the release itself is relatively short as well. Yeah. But I kind of really enjoy those very just short and sweet releases. I mean, there's a lot, and I don't know what it is, there's a lot of French film composers that will basically release like, 10-minute EPs for films, like Rob Couder, Matthew Lambolet, two great French composers that release a ton of that. And it's so focused, and mm. it, it like makes it a joy to listen to. And I think that's something that I'm quite intrigued about when you finally get the green light for the official release as well. Yeah, I, I think I think there was just, there was never that opportunity to write more music because it, it was just so obvious where, you know, yeah. where, what needed music and what, and what didn't need music. The, the challenge of it was actually how to really create a substantial personality in the music with so, with so few cues. Or well, maybe not few cues, but I guess to, total running time being, being so short. So, and and beca- because many of the cues were very short, it's like, well, what, what are the ways that I'm going to establish this personality? And when the cues are really short, how am I going to keep bringing that personality back in? I, I listened to the score again this morning and, and uh, I realised that there was there was a lot of conscious decisions being made about that, which which might not be obvious to the sort of casual listener. That, like there's there's so much of the harmonic and melodic content appearing just really subtly, just even in two or three notes. So in the opening cue and, and the sisters theme, that's where the main sort of motifs and, and harmonic progressions are really established. But they are—they're appearing on on every track in different ways. E- even even the third cue, where Sarah and Nigel are going out in the town, I, I kind of remembered that as being something a bit separate, you know, because because it, it's a it's a completely different. It's yeah. sort of branching, you know, it's, it's going into more sort of electronic dance music kind of territory. But there's a lot going on in there that's actually picking from the existing pieces of music. So it was nice listening to that again this morning and and, and sort of thinking that. You know, actually, maybe it does feel much more part of the whole thing than I realised. And and even just, you know, at the, the very beginning, the first thing that happens on the piano is just these two notes. Just, you know, one, the same note hangs twice. And it's a major seventh. And the context that that note appears in, in the piano, it comes back a couple of times. It comes back on the on the beach when Sarah and Harriet are talking. Just Just plays a couple of times. And it's like, without the context, you wouldn't call it a single note on a piano a motif or a melody or anything but it but it, it it's there and it does something and it and it feels something and it and it, it brings together elements that, that were there before and, and feelings that were there before and there's the stuff like in the in the last cue 
the first two piano chords in the cue are the same chords that are at the very beginning in the first cue, but they're the opposite way around now. And, and that's to show that something has fundamentally changed by the end of the, the score. So th that, was, that was the challenge from my point of view, was I don't have a huge amount of time to create long, memorable melodies or pieces of music. I've got to use all of these micro kind of like yeah. micro motifs and things and and I've got to I've got to bring them back in such a way that and with no expectation that the audience is going to go oh look there's that theme again but they're going to feel the familiarity and I think especially with those shorter cues there's you still manage a coherence in them where it's not mm. 45 seconds and then it just ends abruptly you go I feel like that should have been two or three times as long to develop but it's it's interesting you mentioning even if the literal melody itself, the, the audience might not go, oh yeah, I remember that from 15 minutes ago. There will be the sense of familiarity. It reminded me of what you said a couple of minutes before of switching the order of two chords to represent that change. I mean, are those the types of things that you have the expectation of the audience to consciously get? Or is it just the aim of, I'm planting these seeds, or they've been hearing and listening and watching this for... 85 minutes that somewhere deep down it's going to trigger something mm. um <laughs> i think the truth is is uh, not as elegant as any of those suggestions <laughs> I, th I think it i think it was probably along the lines of you know this is a tried and tested method by composers i'll just wing it and see see if this works <laughs> kind of thing you know i, I mean uh, no maybe i'm being unfair on myself i have done scores where there's a greater variety between the different tracks and the pilot that I mentioned is perhaps more like that but that's because it's much more of an ensemble cast so there's 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 lots of different parties and interests that are being uh, represented but with sorority I think that well one of the the first things that I do with any film is I think about the film itself as a character and I will usually lean towards ultimately writing stuff to represent different people or to represent different themes in the film. Yeah, the, I mean, the only theme in Sorority that represents an individual character is for Val, for, for Kate Dickey, their mother. It doesn't appear in such a way that it's, it's obvious, but uh, I think the way round that it happened was there was... She has a theme that plays when she's watching... Oh, I, don't, I don't know if I want to spoil anything, but anyway, towards, towards the end... She has a theme that plays, and um, track five, just before the trolley scene, I, I extrapolated those elements and turned it into more of a melody there. So that that's her theme, and it's it's so subtle that you wouldn't say this is this is her theme. But but yes, yeah, so I, I I tend to on projects I I go in by thinking about well, what's the general? If I was to write a piece of music that sums up the film as a whole, how how am I going to do that? So there was there was that consideration, and then yeah, there were themes written for their for their the love between them as sisters, and then there was a theme written for the passing of time, which is the, the changes theme, which is the first the first melody that plays. Um, I've lost track of your question and what I'm talking about. That's but... <laughs> fine. That's fine. <laughs> but um, yeah, interesting, and and so I I think that that you may have subconsciously answered it or addressed it too. Right. We were, yeah, we were talking about like, you know, how consciously there was that it was all coherent. And, and yeah. I, I, th I think because of the, the nature of the film, 
again, it would it just dictated what the score was going to do. For the same reasons that there's not loads of score, those are the same reasons that there is a coherent thread from track to track. Because I don't know, it just it, that's just the way it feels. That's the way the film feels. And if I was if I was to write lots of different pieces of music, I just don't think that as an audience member that you would you would really be there with the characters on on their journey and some some scenes going you know going back to the third cue with sarah and niger going out it was just the nature of it that it had to be different but then but then i tried to blend that with the next cue where we start off in this more sort of electronic kind of world and then we we go back into the the strings and the piano and and things Hmm. interesting and this this might be a bit of an unfair question because it's it's big and abstract but earlier you had mentioned you gave the suite to James that he was like, gave you the green light, said, not just the palette, but you've got the story. So where do you think the purpose of film music falls in with the context of a film? Well, Nick, that's a very big and abstract question. Um... <laughs> I, I warned you, I warned you. <laughs> where, so say that again. Where does, where does the... Where does film music fall within a film what do you think that its purpose is and when you're approaching something what are you trying to do with the music itself well i i I think that lots of composers would agree with the statement that the music is there to score the inner world it's it's there to tell the audience what's going on inside the characters and and i think that's when when i meet a composer that's just starting out like a student or something you you know straight away in the music that they're writing whether they get that or they don't. Mm. I don't know if that's a matter of empathy, uh, you know, as as in it's a matter of how you're made up as a human. That that you know you're you're either destined to become a film composer or you're not on the basis of can you actually empathise with what's going on on the in, on the inside of these characters. I would say that that is one fundamental purpose. I I did have a, a friend kind of challenge me recently, you know, in a sort of a cheeky kind of way because we were discussing some scores that had taken us out of a film. My criticism was to say, well, a score should be helping you settle into the film and into the world of the characters. All he did was uh, just raise the question, well, well should it? And, and that was very interesting just to be like, well, okay, what, what would a different experience of a film be if the music was deliberately trying to take you out or, or it was trying to just, uh, I don't know, give... Uh, um, give you a different access point to the story. We're so used to film, uh, sorry, to, to film music doing the former of, of those processes where, where you know, a great score, you're not really aware of it most of the time because you're so absorbed in the story. But I wonder if it's reasonable to compare that to the fact that naturalistic acting is only a recent phenomenon. And, and we, we've come to take that for granted, but then you have people, you know, as much flack as he gets, like what Nicolas Cage is, is said to be doing is, is actually trying to push acting out into some, some other kind of territory, something perhaps more archetypal or, or whatever. You know, and you, you watch a lot of Nick Cage's performances and they kind of take you out of, of the film. But if, if, you, if you came to it with a different attitude and you weren't looking for realism, you were looking for some kind of sense of drama that was just different and wasn't reflect a, meant to reflect reality in some way in the way that musicals perhaps are not meant to reflect reality i used to hate musicals because i was like well that's not how life happens no one bursts into song and it took me a while to switch my mindset and, and actually 
enjoy them in that respect. So going back to your original question, I, I think I think the vast majority of film composers believe and work from the point of view that you are there to support the story, support the actors, and help the audience get absorbed in that. And on the much deeper level, give them ideas of what's going on and a sense of where we might going uh, might be going in the story. So a, sen- a sense of the music has this intuition that's just a little bit ahead of the audience. You know, it's like it's it has a little bit of foreknowledge about what's happening. We're being we're being teased about the things that are going on, but it's not screaming. You know, this is right. what's happening. And, and actually, in, in the case of this film I was discussing with, with the friend recently, my feeling with the score was that it was kind of screaming, this is, this is what's happening. Yeah. Well, and that's where I think the saying that you hear quite often is that a good film score is one that you don't notice. That mm. is, I think, often taken far too literally. But yeah, there, there really is that balance of it being noticeable enough without bashing you over the head. You take some of the, the most iconic themes, like the theme for Jaws or something. Every time that comes on, you notice it immediately and you know exactly what it means. But it's interesting because when I was talking with Harry Gregson Williams a few weeks ago, he was also mentioning a recent score that very much took him out. So maybe you two were uh, talking about the same one. But yeah, maybe. It's, <laughs> it's, it's interesting. But And I think with the, the Nick Cage aspect too, I mean... I always chalk some of his style to just being in shitty movies. And if he was acting like everybody else, it would disappear into the ether and no one would ever think about it. But also the fact that like some a lot of his movies don't feel quite real. There's something, there's often a, a strange, surreal element to it. And I think that brings it out. And whether you can draw a one-to-one parallel to film music or some aspects, I don't know. Maybe what we need is we need a Nick Cage film where he's not the only actor that's exploring that style of acting, <laughs> and, may, and maybe maybe it would start to make more sense then. I, I think I think often he's so juxtaposed with the way that everyone else is performing that yeah he he seems yeah. really really caricatured. I find that that assessment of Nicolas Cage very interesting. The first time I heard it was when Ethan Hawke defended him and and actually actually said. It, Quite specifically, he's the only actor that's trying to do something. He's trying to push acting into new, new territory. But I think I, I think I read even Nick Cage saying it explicitly recently. And I don't think I've watched that many Nick Cage films since I became aware that this might be the case. The only one I saw not too long ago was Mandy, which was mm. fantastic and yeah. seemed like it was re- well, it was it was it was great. The first half was great. I think it kind of lost its way a bit later on. It felt like it was written for Nicolas Cage, and I couldn't believe that it that it. It wasn't actually. There's several of his films. You know, Pig's got lots of good reviews. I've been wanting to watch that. That's an interesting one because I actually think he's he's much more restrained in that. I think it being Nick Cage and it seeming like... Because I, I saw it around when it came out, so I hadn't heard much of it. So I thought it was going to be like a Nick Cage revenge movie. And what you get is utterly different. There's some of the what we know of as Nick Cage in there. But it's not him in, like, from Vampire's Kiss, running and screaming the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I've only watched clips of Vampire's Kiss. and uh, <laughs> Is that the one where he recites the alphabet at some point to somebody? It might be. I haven't seen that in a long time. Yeah. All, the, the one that always comes to mind is there's an image that's always circulating of him wearing plastic vampire's teeth. And then, like, the famous yeah. clip is... Him running through, I think, Manhattan just screaming, I'm a vampire, over and over. 
well, you know, like this is this is penetrating drama that we're talking about here. <laughs> I I mean, I need to see Wild at Heart. That's that's you know, I haven't seen that. I've seen and and I, I went through a big David Lynch phase where mm. I was like just watching all of his stuff, and Wild at Heart was one that I didn't watch. You know, that's meant to be one of Nick Cage's best performances. That is a, a great one of his, and again, like David Lynch as a director isn't creating a a world that we recognize as one-to-one to our world either. So it mm, it, it fits mm, yeah. a little more in that. Yeah. But yeah, but go, going back to music in that respect, it's in, there's so much amazing experimental stuff going on in, in film scoring today. And, and I think, I think we've seen a huge shift in the way that particularly TV, I think, I think TV scores have really kind of shifted the, the rules over the last 10 years. So there's a lot of experimentation going on in terms of, the way music is structured, you know, the way sound design is move, uh, used, the way that the palettes that are used and all of that kind of stuff. But I think everyone is still taking for granted that we're there to serve the story and we're there mm. to you know, help the audience get absorbed. So maybe that's because we've, we've tried other things and we worked out that's what's best to do. But it's, it's just a fascinating question to kind of leave hanging in the air, you know, like, well, what, what, what could be the other approaches? Actually, what, what comes to mind is um, stuff that crosses the fourth wall. It's not so much a musical reference point, but the film Barbarian Sound Studio, did you see that? A lot, a, a while ago, ago, but yeah. But there's some stuff in that where, where it really, it crosses the fourth wall and, and the sound design all goes in with that. I love stuff like that, that really just messes with the listener. I've tried doing that with music, not for film, mm. where there's just stuff that kind of catches you out and stuff. And, and, you know, I like when I first started hearing binaural recordings and you could hear stuff moving around you and, yeah. and coming right up to your ear and that kind of thing. And that was fascinating. But it's such an, in, uh, an intense experience and you have to be, you're so present to the music and sound itself that it doesn't necessarily go hand in hand with film but the more that vr takes off if we're getting more sort of vr stories happening um, where you can have a cinematic experience in vr there might be opportunities for music to do something interesting there interesting honestly i've been very dismissive of like vr and ar and that sort of thing it's been around for a few years and i'm always like well what's the point of this but that's that's actually a very interesting observation that i think i don't know maybe it does have some legs I, I had a, an experience a few years ago where I went to some expo and one of the stalls there, they had a VR experience and it was a short film. Mm. And uh, it mostly took place inside a car and you were in one of the seats and you could move your head around and you could see different things that were happening. It made a real impact on me. And one of the reasons it made an impact on me is that my girlfriend at the time wasn't really into I you know I generally didn't think she would be into VR and computer games and that kind of thing but this felt like a different way that we could mm. share a cinematic experience it was just a simple thing like you know you're in you're in this you know in inverted commas film and one of you sees something that the other doesn't and you say hey look over here and it's like you know if 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 you're there with a friend or or a partner or someone you know close to you and you're you're sharing this experience together and you're actually interacting with each other to influence the experience that was when i was like right this can this can be something really exciting and that was like 7 or 8 years ago oh, now wow. and and we've got so many more we've got loads more vr games but i haven't seen much more in in the way of cinematic experiences so i think yeah i think i think there's opportunities there but it's just 
it's just difficult i think it's this it's the same reason we don't see that many clover fields for example because yeah. you can do first person found footage in certain ways and clover field is a, an amazing example of that and if 3d had really taken off at that time that would have been an absolutely intense film to watch but there's not that many stories that maybe lend themselves to that kind of experience yeah or i mean people often try to do that experience and it immediately feels inauthentic because you go well that doesn't make sense from the perspective of a story for that to be happening. And I think that that's been the issue with VR is is it working its way towards the threshold of mass adoption of it to where then there will be an explosion of things being made. And yeah, I mean, that, that concept's really interesting because then you imagine the music side of things is going to have to require maybe not an entirely different mindset, but a different one than what we have for a normal straightforward two-hour linear narrative 10 minutes ago i had i had no interest in this and now i'm i'm very you're sold yeah yeah (laughs) yeah on that note i think we can uh we can wrap up derek again i'm i'm so glad that you could join me today it was a pleasure talking about sorority and then you never know what conversation is going to veer off into nick cage but i think it always makes for a better one (laughs) I try and bring Nick Cage into every conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Nick. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah.